Hello and welcome to the PCRS podcast series. In this series, we'll be bringing you experts on a number of respiratory related topics. The podcast has been produced to update you and to give you food for thought about how you deliver your respiratory services. Hello and welcome to this podcast on how to diagnose COPD for the Primary Care Respiratory Society. Um, I'm Steve Holmes, I'm a general practitioner in Somerset, and I'm joined today by my colleague and, and friend Jane Scullion, who's a nurse consultant in the University of uh, Leicester Hospitals. What we're going to try to do is provide a thought-provoking discussion on how to diagnose COPD that might challenge some of your current thinking, because we know that a lot of you are making this diagnosis on a regular basis. And if there are things here that we miss out and there's evidence that you are aware of that we aren't, then please feel free to send that in. And we can then do an updated podcast uh, highlighting areas that we have actually been able to answer over time. Jane, lovely to see you. Really nice to see you too, Steve. What do you think we should be doing about COPD and the diagnosis? Because at the moment in the last year, only 50% of the normal number of people who are diagnosed with COPD have been diagnosed with it this last year. And we don't know how good the quality is of the diagnosis. We've, We've got huge problems, haven't we? You know, there's the people that we've not diagnosed this year. There's people that have been overdiagnosed this year. We're going to have a lot of time unpicking those diagnoses as well as looking for the next year's lot and the next year's lot and you know it we've known how to case find for COPD for a long while I know it's been in the guidance about people over 35 those smokers and ex-smokers and the typical symptoms so the wheeze the bronchitis sputum production the cough the, the breathlessness and that's been compounded by COVID deconditioning and all the things we've been discussing yeah And I guess it's important to say that just because you've got a cough and you produce some phlegm and you've smoked and you're over 35, it doesn't mean you've got COPD. That's where we need to be looking to sort of case find. And we have to watch out for people who do believe that they can diagnose it purely on the history. Yeah, so we've always known that a good history and examination are really, really important. And probably it is more likely in in smokers, but know those obvious things that we we miss and especially with remote consultations the atrial fibrillation thinking around you know has person actually got asthma we know you can develop asthma at any age but it tends to be if you've ever smoked your diagnosis will be COPD and that's rather sad isn't it but I but I think yes I'd agree with you I think making the diagnosis it's a good history and examination I don't think you can make the diagnosis without clinically listening in for things like aortic stenosis and, as you said, atrial fibrillation and other problems. Yeah, and, and just looking at, at somebody really helps, doesn't it? You know, you, you see this person with bilateral leg swelling and, you know, people can have cardiac problems and COPD or one or the other or a whole host of other things. So maybe that goes back to, you know, when we're thinking about that diagnosis, what things are useful. And I think the guidance sort of says, you know, chest x-rays, baseline, full blood count and BMI. What do you think about those as parameters? Chest x-ray, I think really sensible. And if I was in doubt, I might even think about higher and, and a high resolution CT scan or a CT scan. Full blood count, yes. People who are breathless can often be anemic. Watching out for high platelet counts. So a, high, a platelet count of more than 450 
should make us think about Lego C, lung cancer, esophageal cancer, um, endometrial cancer, gastric cancer, and uh, colorectal cancers are much commoner with a high platelet count, Lego C. Body mass index, don't know where that came from. It's been in since 2004. We don't have ECG on the list. What relevance does the body mass index have to making the diagnosis? Don't know. No, I'm not sure about that one either, because, you know, obviously we we know that, you know, increased weight increases breathlessness, whether it's just um, helping people think about it. But what we do know is that if you have a BMI as a baseline after diagnosis, it can be a prognostic indicator of a poorer prognosis. So the little skinny ones don't do as well as those that carry an extra bit of weight. Not that that's an excuse to encourage anyone to put on weight. No, it's an observation, isn't it? Rather than a, a piece of therapeutic advice. Yeah. And this confirmation of spirometry has been so problematic and, and still is, you know, with huge waiting lists for spirometry. Is it every, everything we've always thought it was cracked up to be? It's always, you know, mooted that this is the gold standard um, for diagnosing COPD, does it? Yeah, it's challenging, isn't it? The, the, certainly it's a confirmation by spirometry after your history and examination and other tests. But there's quite there's a few studies now coming out from the US showing that smokers with symptoms have just as worse outcomes if they have normal spirometry as if they have obstructive or, uh, you know, obstructive COPD type spirometry. Are we leaving things a little bit too late to make that diagnosis in some of these people? I guess the difficulty often is with that, Steve, is that, you know, the people who are outside the spirometric measures that we have, which are just averages, we don't really have recognised treatments for them because the studies haven't been done because spirometry has been the basis of the licensing for medications that might make a difference to people. Yes, and I think it's important to to realise that both gold and nice think that clinicians don't really have a good thinking brain. They go for a fixed ratio of 70%, don't they? FEV1, FVC ratio, 70%. Whereas at least now our updated um, ARTP guidance on spirometry and the primary care uh, guidance on spirometry in 2008 suggested use of the lower limit of normal, which I would commend people to be looking at very carefully. But perhaps we talk about that in a minute or two. Okay. What about alpha-1 antitrypsin estimation? Do you do that on everyone in hospital? No, is the quick answer to that one. But we do think about it in people who have got, especially early onset emphysema, that may have been picked up. I know chest x-ray doesn't diagnose COPD, but but it can help. We do it in those with a really good family history. Um, We don't tend to do it in everyone, but I know some centres do because we actually haven't got a good estimation of the proper prevalence. So some people do it more as a research tool than anything else. And, you know, you ask yourself, if you pick it up, what difference does it make? Now, if they're younger, it's obviously important because these are people who definitely need that strong smoking cessation advice if they're still smoking. And they are the people that can be put forward for other interventions. So people are going to have surgery or to have transplant possibility. And you've also got to think about if it's genetic, then it's important for 
teenagers or other family members who may also be persuaded never to start smoking or to keep themselves and fit as a, and active as possible. Yeah, um, really interesting. I think Gold and the WHO recommend that we should uh, estimate the alpha-1 antitrypsin level in all because it's a cheap test. Um, but it does have implications. All genetic testing does, doesn't it? Because it, it's quite difficult. And, you know, I I've saw a family of five where four siblings died of it and they one who didn't have it out of the five had real survivor issues and um, you know mental health problems from worrying about her siblings but also feeling that why me why would that I survive and they didn't yeah and and the implications of testing in children under the age of 16 because the parents want them tested can have quite significant ethical dilemmas as to how it's going to be managed moving forward and informed choice yeah, so both of the guidance sort of says we can also consider HRCT. Yeah. I don't know what the evidence is behind that. And I think sometimes, you know, if you scan everybody, you might pick up a lung abnormality that actually isn't terribly relevant and you end up following people or worrying them unnecessarily. So is there a group of people we actually should consider that in? So you're talking about vomit, victim of medical imaging and technology, people who are actually harmed by having a test done and then requiring other investigations. I like your acronyms. It's, an, it's not mine, it's an American acronym, and it, it links in with both the physical harm that sometimes biopsying and things do, and the psychological damage of people thinking there's something seriously wrong with them. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I don't know, is a, is a chest x-ray good enough anymore? Should we not just be doing a the, the radiation isn't a lot greater. If we had capacity, would we do a HRCT on most people at the time of diagnosis? I don't know, because again, it, it's problematic, isn't it? And a poor HRCT isn't much good. And there are people who actually don't understand the concept of hold your breath. So we get a lot of what looks like breathing artifact rather than anything else. So, you know, what is the value of doing it? Yeah, we shouldn't just do a test because it's on a list. It should be thought through. And perhaps one of the things to think through is, is this patient likely to have coexisting bronchiectasis? Would, I, would they benefit from being able to identify an area of bronchiectetic damage on the CT at an early stage so that the management can be merged. But but I guess these are real clinical issues that we have to think through. Yeah. And we've got to provide value for money as well, haven't we, as well as being effective in terms of what we're diagnosing. So we're going to consider the cardiovascular evaluation in, in terms of looking at the COPD diagnosis. But what sort of things make us want to think again? I think cardiovascular wise, it fits in with my, my thought is that most people, the commonest cause of death in most of the studies of people with COPD is cardiovascular disease. We really should be at the point of diagnosis or around that time, thinking very carefully about their Q risk score. So their, their likelihood of coronary artery disease or cerebrovascular disease. We might also be wanting to think about echoes and um, pro-BNPs in terms of heart failure, 
Uh, we certainly need to be examining them clinically, and we shouldn't forget our old friend, the ECG. Interestingly, in my practice, I look at all the um, spirometry readings and overread these and have to tell my colleagues if they've made a misinterpretation. But I have a colleague who looks at all the ECGs and knocks on my door to tell me what I haven't been able to spot on the ECG. So it's using all the services of the team. It is. Um, but you, you're never looking forward to the knocks. You're not quite sure what you've missed. Yeah. I, I always think with spirometry, and I mean, we could talk a bit about spirometry. It's actually the, the, one of the most common things I see in it is that people don't do the actual FE, FVC, FEV1 ratio. They look at the percentage predicted. And I've seen that so often. Yes. And that, and that may be something that we could actually just technically remove from the data set that is printed out to avoid that confusion. Because, yes, I've seen that quite a few times as well. When, when should we think again about people with CAPD? I guess if I quickly talk through the younger person, if they have spirometry and it doesn't revert entirely back to normal, that doesn't mean they haven't got asthma still. And I see that quite commonly in GP interpretations where the assumption is if you've given them four puffs of salbutamol, their lung function must go back to normal because that's what will happen. But that wouldn't happen in an acute asthma attack. You wouldn't get their lung function right back to normal. Sometimes it takes a while longer. You're looking for a change. We've talked about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And in Somerset, there's a fair amount of drugs going on, um, especially around uh, certain music festival areas. But it's not common. You know, it's a common problem throughout the UK now. Uh, cannabis, heroin smokers more people smoking than um, intravenous at the moment in the UK, and a lot of those people ending up with COPD. So we should be thinking in younger people how much of that is drug-related. It's always an important thing, isn't it? Because we often ask people, do you smoke? And they'll say no, but they don't consider smoking other substances as actually smoking. They take it to be tobacco. So it, it, it's moving your mindset a bit and saying, but do you, you, know, do you use any recreational drugs or and being open about it with people and, and the usage of it is far higher than we think across all age groups we tend to think it's young people that tend to imbibe but actually um and probably in your not not trying to stereotype your population steve but if they've always done it they'll always do it and I, I, I agree and i think yes we shouldn't be deceived into thinking it is just younger people it can often be um, people um, who are well past retirement, who are still use, using drugs that, that perhaps the police would want to know about. What about shisha and water pipes? I've seen these, these sort of places um, in the cities where you can go and get a hubble bubble pipe and sit down outside or when it's raining inside. They're not quite as safe as they seem, are they? No, I mean, people, do, again, don't think that that is um, harmful to the lungs. But, I mean, some of the research around there has said you know each pipe is between 100 and 200 cigarettes worth in terms of the tobacco and you're heating a substance and putting it into your lungs I don't know if they've lost a bit of popularity I guess maybe one thing lockdown did it's, it stopped everyone socializing with their hubba bubba pipes or their shisha pipes yeah I did frightening that 100 to 200 cigarettes per pipe impact and that's why probably we are seeing things but I think the other thing that's happened is labeling of 
the tobacco that people smoke in that environment has now been labelled as this is as no this is a hazardous too, because of the number of people who thought it was safe. So that, I guess those are the catches to watch out for in younger people. What about the person where we get X-rays that say, "Oh, it's hyperventilation"? It, that must be COPD, mustn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's a real bugbear, isn't it? Because you know, you you can see hyperventilation. You can see, you know, the lung looks like it's full of emphysema, and people end up on the registers having COPD. And then we go and do our spirometry or do our investigations, and actually, they don't. They've just got emphysema, and that's the problem with the COPD umbrella if you like it's not totally inclusive we will always see people with emphysema but no fixed obstruction we will also always see people with chronic bronchitis but no fixed obstruction so it's not a total umbrella and I think that's often where we go a bit wrong when we're thinking about it and I, I understand that it's a devil's own job to get them off the COPD register in general practice once they're on it because you technically can't cure it yeah I, do, I, th I think the challenges are that sometimes the diagnosis is put onto a summary, any summary, wherever it might be, or and, and that goes onto the records as it's a diagnosis. And I know it sometimes in practice, if the nurse or the doctor with an interest in COPD said, this looks like COPD, and they don't see them for the next couple of times, that can often slip onto the diagnosis well, they thought it looked like it, so it must be, without getting that confirmation. I guess the confirmation, the, the spirometry confirmation, is really relevant when we think about the medication that we need to be prescribed, because that's where all the trials have been done on that ratio. But the principles behind it, the, the triple therapy of smoking cessation, immunisation, and rehabilitation, or getting them more active, are probably areas that would fit in whether or not they had obstructive spirometry. I think I think you're right, and I think you know probably in the future we'll start to see uh, maybe trials of treatment in those people who are breathless. Would they benefit from a bronchodilator if there's some emphysema or something else going on? COPD is changing all the time. It's changed in our lifetime and it will change again. And I think, you know, we need to be adaptable. And, and I'm sure over the coming months, a lot of what we say may change. So again, you know, welcoming comments around it. So we've done chest x-rays, we've done young people. How about the older person who's never smoked? I mean, they must often just get so confused about it. And, and people get very upset when they say, oh, you know, you you've got COPD, you must have been a smoker. And they'll say, I've never smoked. Yeah. And, and I can see them getting upset with that sort of thing. I guess the way I think about it from the, um, the fixed ratio versus lower limit of normal is when I'm 18 and six foot five and very athletic, I will blow out air really quickly from my lungs, often 90% in that first second, not 70%. If I'm five foot two, I've got an element of osteoporosis, have some other degenerative conditions that mean that I can't take the biggest breath in possible, and I blow it as quickly as I can, with the muscles helping and all the other things along with that, I'd expect that ratio to be lower. Yeah. And that's where the lower limit of normal comes in. in and that's where I'm always suspicious in the older person 
making that diagnosis purely on the basis of a ratio of 69 or 68%. Be really careful, I think. And I always think those cutoff figures are, are really um, difficult. So you haven't got it if it's 71%. You have got it if it's 69 or 70. You no, know, that there's margins in it. And as you say, technique is so important. So when we do spirometry, it's also looking at, was it a good blow? Have we done three blows? How's the curve? All those things that have been drummed into us are really important rather than just taking that value at face value. It's to help clinical judgment to make a good diagnosis with it. I guess the other bit from the research is that people who have COPD where everything fits in with it, but they haven't been smokers, the majority of causes, roughly about 95% in the two trials done in Europe, have had undertreated asthma. So make sure that you manage your asthma properly. And one of the things I often think about, and I know we've discussed before, is about occupation. So, you know, the area I'm in, I see a lot of hosiery workers that have spent time inhaling little fibres. I would imagine that irritates the lungs and can cause some damage. And we've always been very good in asthma about thinking about occupational causes. but We've never really studied it fully yeah. in people that are diagnosed with COPD. I think that's absolutely true. And I think, again, when you start looking at the methodologies behind the assumptions on biomass fuels as a main cause of COPD in many countries, often it's in countries where the poor people are smoking a lot as well in that sort of environment. How much of it is actually the, the fuel cause of it? How much of it is other forms of poverty? So lots of things to think about there. Hopefully we've challenged a few thoughts that you may have had hopefully we've consolidated some of the queries you've had and hopefully this will encourage you to listen to some more of the podcasts thanks very much jane for your expertise and honesty and thank you steve as well it's always good to talk these things through with our respiratory colleagues because it always gives a different slant on it and i think that's really useful thank you for listening Please remember to subscribe for future podcasts. Goodbye.